0: or wherever you listen.
1: And it's either we put in these clearly just gargantuan amount of resources to really get to people, understand where everyone's at, work person by person, not give up with any single person, or we just live with an atrocity and keep kind of like pointing fingers and, you know, just blaming people.
2: You're listening to How To... I'm Amanda Ripley. If you live in just about any city in this country, you're probably familiar with the issue of homelessness or houselessness as it's increasingly being called, as you'll hear. And it can feel like a never ending problem with no solution. One that's especially hard to reconcile in the winter and around the holidays. There's been a lot of politics and fear swirling around this subject for a long time. But what if we put all that noise on pause and just asked, what works and what doesn't? What can we do? Are there tangible ways to make a difference in the lives of people who are unhoused? That's what our listener this week wants to know.
1: My name is Alex. I'm 35. I've lived pretty much my whole life in Los Angeles. And uh, growing up, there's always homeless people, which is I don't say that lightly, but it was just a fact of life. But uh, within the last, I don't know, five or 10 years, it, the problem is just at least seemingly or just visibly is exploded. And it, it just seems like it's only getting worse and worse. But it's just very unclear what needs to happen or how we would know that things are, you know, really on the right trajectory. It's just frustrating to be on the sidelines and feel helpless about it.
2: Alex isn't the only one. Just this week, LA's newly elected mayor, Karen Bass, said she's making this her number one priority. I will start my first day as mayor at the city's emergency operations centers, where my first act as mayor will be to declare a state of emergency on homelessness. That sounds great, but what I wonder is does declaring an emergency actually help? Now, we know this is a complicated problem, part of which is a lack of housing in a lot of cities, and we're obviously not going to solve this whole issue in one episode. But that doesn't mean we can't get more clarity about what actually works. And for that reason, we reached out to not one, but two different experts. Later in the show, we'll meet another mayor one whose city functionally ended veteran and chronic homelessness by doing something altogether different than what most cities have tried so far. But first up is Theo Henderson, a former school teacher and a current activist who has himself lived on the streets of L.A. Theo, could you kind of help us understand? I know that now more and more people are talking about people who are unhoused as opposed to homeless people. What's the best way to talk about this complex problem? What words do you like to use?
3: Well, one of the things that has been happening within the past 20 years, particularly in the unhoused and houselessness and the uh, evolution of creating agency for people to identify how they want to be called. Too often I got irritated and frustrated when I uh, was experiencing houselessness is house people telling me what I should be called. Um, And it always had some kind of pejorative. It was some kind of stigma. And then we started to push for being called unhoused, displaced, unsheltered. We are in the age of being able to get a self-agency in every facet, from the LGBTQI plus community to African Americans, Black Americans, and any other community. But when it comes to uh, defining ourselves, um, our society collectively looks askance or tries to uh, control the narrative on our existence.
2: So it sounds like I'm hearing you say that, you know we need to ask people who are unhoused for their perspective much more often and and amplify their voices and it seems like your preference is to to say unhoused and houselessness that is correct is that right? it
3: creates the agency i determine how yeah. i like to be addressed
2: yeah and i also like that idea because it's like the truth is look this is a fragile situation we got going in this country any of us could lose our housing things change right and we don't know how things are going to change and this is part of our, our problem
3: Hurricane Ian is a perfect example of that. These people had houses, they had jobs, they had livelihoods, but now they're on the same footing as people that have been displaced for years. And it's going to cause a very different reality, a a come-to-Jesus moment.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So I like the idea of coming at this with some humility and some grace and realizing that we are kind of all in this together, right? Even though it doesn't always feel that way, even though there are differences in power and resources um, that are really important. On today's show, how can we stop thinking about houselessness as a giant, intractable problem and start thinking about the actual people experiencing it? And how do we start chipping away at a solution? After the break, we'll hear more about how Theo lost his own housing and what he thinks might make a difference. Stay with us.
0: In each episode, Katie talks to authors, historians, athletes, Nobel laureates, and everyday people about why we make irrational choices and how we can make better ones to avoid costly mistakes. Listen and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast, or find it wherever you listen.
4: This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure.
2: Theo, could you tell us, speaking of, you know, that we need to ask people from lived experience what it's like. Could you tell us just a little bit about your own experience with being unhoused in L.A.?
3: I was born and raised in Chicago. I finished uh, my high school at, in a private school and I finished my undergraduate in Michigan, uh, actually in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And from there, I took in my career as an educator and I uh, taught in several different places. And then I ended up in Los Angeles teaching at the uh, some of the schools in Los Angeles before I, I had my medical emergency.
2: And that is what kind of started this spiral, right?
3: That is correct, very correct. Um, and of course, it, it didn't happen instantaneous. I ended on the yeah. street. People were concerned, my coworkers and things like that allowed me to try to recuperate in, in their places. But then, as yes, you uh, as understandably aware, some of them live in apartments, some of them have families, and some of them, it, you don't want to overstay your welcome. It, it's, it sure, becomes yeah. a very tiptoe kind of existence. And so I tried to scramble as much as money as I can to get into some hotels and try to do the best and then try as well as I recuperate, try to find a job which was impossible because I had a, a side of my face paralyzed and I was slurring mm-hmm. words. And then our society is always so quick to make it sound like we, I, you know, we are on substances or mentally ill. And most people do not want to take a chance with me coming try and trying to still recover and try to find a job. So Mm -hmm. that was another impossibility, another Mm -hmm. reality that we are very ableist in our society as well.
2: Yeah, a lot of layers to this, right? A lot of layers. And one thing leads to another, and then it becomes very hard to get traction.
3: I had a medical emergency. I was in a coma for a few days, and I had to make a long, hard road to recovery. And it's very difficult to uh, maintain medical costs and living and, and physical therapy and all of the things that it entails. Without uh, the necessary financial support or uh, community, I fell into the couch commitments, CD motels, then to the streets. Uh, actually, before the streets, I was in uh, these services and sh- uh, shelters, and then I became in the streets. So the decline was the same and very similar to many of the unhoused people that, like the gentleman that I covered where his wife had brain cancer and he uh, used his savings to try to help save her life and she ended up passing away and he can't afford the rent and he lives out on the street where he used to be the handyman or uh, at the apartment building. These conversations are always uh, clouded because you hear people talk about individuals that are on substances or having mental disorders and not understanding that being unhoused is traumatic and sometimes uh, people are trying to cope with trauma in myriad ways, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's not as simple as people love to demonize uh, substance usage and and mental health issues as well.
2: There's so many individual reasons why people end up without shelter, right? Like including interactions with the healthcare system, which is broken in many ways in many places, um, with education, right? With um, violence, it's like we're describing a symptom instead of a cause, right? And and a lot is getting put under that under that umbrella.
3: The second thing I'd like to uh, point out, a lot of the unhoused community members' experiences with hostility from the neighbors, the hostility from the cops, the indifference from the c- citizenry, the in- inaccurate framings a lot of times from mainstream media who doesn't really have their finger on the pulse of the situation.
2: So there's a huge amount of complexity and humanity that gets lost when people talk about this problem. And that, of course, distorts how we try to fix it. This seems like a good time to bring in our second expert, who is all too familiar with the gap between policy and reality. Larry Morrissey currently works in the healthcare industry, but from 2005 to 2017, he was mayor of Rockford, Illinois, a smaller city about 80 miles northwest of Chicago. And if you're thinking, like I did originally, that Rockford must have it easier, well, you'd be wrong.
5: So first, let me just say I'm honored to be part of this conversation and share my experiences. We're a city of 150,000 people. We were, during my time in office, identified as the number one city in a lot of wrong categories, one of the highest crime rates in the nation for cities under 200,000 A ton of unemployment, highest unemployment, highest rate of mortgage foreclosures during the Great Recession. We've struggled with a lot of the same issues of complexity and um, harm as a lot of larger cities. And what that means when you're trying to respond to a complex problem like homelessness is oftentimes those who have capacity, those, you know, for example, economic development groups, their solution for something like homelessness is to try to hide it. Why? Because they're ashamed of it. And it's part of a history and a legacy that they attribute to us being a, a failing community. And mm-hmm. ultimately, if we don't come to grips with the impact of, of trauma and the impact of sort of this shame and blame at both the individual level, and the community level, until we address that, I don't think we're equipped to fully resolve and solve problems.
2: So describing it like a small city, I'm sort of making it sound like everything's easy. It's just Pleasantville. Everything's easy all the time. And and in fact, no, these are some real challenges you face. And one of the challenges is um, this history of feeling forsaken, right, and forgotten. And that brings its own complexity.
5: That's right. When you look to deal with the federal government and all of the complexity around the programs that have evolved over time, it is a maze to navigate and potentially harder to navigate when you're in a community that doesn't have as large of resources. Our success that we had, if you want to call it that, didn't happen overnight. We, We worked for over 10 years with me struggling on an issue of homelessness, which was important to me from the day I was elected and really before I was elected. I didn't realize until my third term in office that I was in the healthcare business. Not Hmm. figuratively, but literally. You know, when you employ police department, fire department, when you have uh, social workers, when you're out in the community every day, you know, I came to learn about the research around social determinants of health and the fact that I could impact directly as mayor the conditions that have a bigger impact on health outcomes than actually the hospital systems in my community, the individual Hmm. care providers. I realized, again, the light bulb went off as we were dealing with homelessness, dealing with violent crime, that ultimately I had a direct impact on improving these outcomes. And it was fundamentally a shift from being program focused to people focused.
2: That's the key right there. That shift from program focused to people focused. It's not a slogan. It's a totally different way of operating a city, Larry told us.
5: Doing to take care of the health of our city employees, trying to deal with things like you know, employees who had chronic conditions like diabetes, building patient lists to be proactive in doing outreach to them. Ultimately, we use the same approach when we we're identifying people who are at high risk for homelessness, people who are actually unhoused, and creating a list of those individuals. And instead of waiting for them to come to us and, frankly, blaming people who are in need for not accessing help, what we, the, the fundamental shift was us being very proactive in identifying those who were in need and then being proactive and going out to them.
2: Yeah, I'm really curious about that evolution that you went through. Um, can you say a little bit more about why this was important to you? You said even before you became mayor?
5: Absolutely, yeah. So I grew up with a great deal of compassion towards the unhoused, in large part because of the way I was raised by my parents. My dad. Uh, was a, uh, a recovering alcoholic. Um, first ten years of my life were really rough. And one of the things that as I got older and, and started living um, the beneficial life of a family that was helped by my dad's sobriety and, and his ongoing path of, in recovery is being around my dad and you know seeing homeless people and but for the grace of God, there go I. My dad would say that frequently. And as he saw someone who might be homeless in downtown Rockford, I could see in his eyes thought, you know, that could have been him. He's also an Air Force veteran, served during the Korean War. And so when the issue of veterans homelessness in particular came up, me uh, taking the pledge to end veterans homelessness, I had to think very deeply about, you know, not wanting to disappoint my dad. If we were going to make a pledge mm. so bold as to end veteran homelessness.
2: Hmm. So you grew up with an awareness this shift that happened in your own administration and your own mind between focusing on systems and programs as opposed to systems and individuals. I mean, it seems like in most places this doesn't still doesn't exist, right? Like that you created this infrastructure where anyone who was experiencing uh, homelessness could. Be entered into a system at any single place, whether it's a shelter, a city office, a nonprofit, and then that record could be shared by all. And this sounds super boring, like spreadsheet stuff, but it sounds like it's actually really important.
5: It's vital. And, you know, people would rather talk about what they might consider sexier issues. We want to build X number more units. You may need more Mm -hmm. resources. Absolutely. We added resources to achieve success. But we were talking about all those other things without having a systems architecture in place to support people. So that um, changed when we became people focused. And at a very basic level, what that means is you need to know the name and identity and the concerns of every single homeless person you're trying to help. And if you don't do that, then what you wind up is trying to manage by stereotype. Theo, I think, talked about this. And then you blame the individuals, you group everybody together, then you blame them, and then you just perpetuate that over and over and over. You point fingers. You can get elected that way or re-elected that way, but you won't achieve community success by managing things that way.
1: Um, I think this is making so much sense to me of just, you know, the natural inclination, and this is how I would think is, uh, we just, we need X amount of dollars to hire more mental health professionals. We need X amount of dollars to build more housing. You know, we need to push more money here, more money there, rather than, no, first we need to go out and kind of learn about the people and know mm-hmm. who needs what and kind of develop it that way, yeah. a much more individualized approach.
2: So in Rockford, zooming in and addressing each and everyone's needs on a personal level really worked. But L.A. is roughly 20 times the size of Rockford, and its problems feel 20 times bigger. Can you get human-centered with that many humans? Is that even possible? We'll get Theo's take right after the break.
4: Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts.
2: We're back with our listener, Alex, former mayor Larry Morrissey, and Theo Henderson, an advocate and the host of the podcast, We the Unhoused. Theo, I'm curious, what do you think about this idea of trying to get down to the individual level like this? Like, is that even possible in a city that's as big as L.A.? Is that where you'd like to see things go?
3: I believe some contextual understanding needs to be explained because I'm going to use myself the example. I'm a black man, and most people in Los Angeles, when they see unhoused people, call the police. For example, when one day I was waiting out for the bus in the rain, this group of white patrons at a store called the police to say I was menacing looking for waiting for the bus. Hmm. And what that ensued was the SWAT team coming because I was considered a danger because I was unhoused. Now, what this this city does is they believe that you put uh, police officers on the beat to get the no unhoused people after ex- incidents like this to trust them to get services. And yeah. understandably, that's not happening. I don't trust the police. And until we have become honest and saying in our communities, we have some healing to do, we have to reconfigure, in the way of individualizing. We individualize by doing mutual aid, utilizing community networks and community groups together, not shelters, not systems that have been in place for years, because obviously it is broken. We have created things outside the box that is less harm-inducive, and to creating a situation where we can create a community unhoused unhoused people to help, like the reclaimers, Like the J-Town Action that works with me uh, every Saturday to provide mutual aid and individualized services and seeing the community.
2: So there's such a history of distrust and corruption and bad faith and police violence that it sounds like you are all for individualizing assistance, but it's best if it comes from people who have themselves been unhoused or people at sort of at the community level. Is that right? Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Theo. And Larry, it sounds like in in the case of Rockford, one of the things that you did was build the infrastructure so that you could literally know everyone's names. Can you give us, is there an example that comes to mind of why that matters?
5: I think it's important to point out that what we've inherited as a society, what I inherited as mayor of Rockford, what I think every local community in the country and our federal government really has pushed since World War II. You know, in in the past, they've called it the war on poverty, right? So when we use a bureaucratic form of organization to deal with problems, you understand that that gives us an architecture that is, in its essence, dehumanizing. We Hmm. don't have to accept that. We can change it, but it takes intention. We were trying hard before 2015. We just weren't successful. When you look at healthcare, when you look at education, when you look at criminal justice, the most important thing I could stress is we need to move to a human, people based approach. Now, that may sound sort of nice. It's not just nice, it's critical. It just won't work doing it any other way. Everyone mm-hmm. has unique needs, challenges, resources. Some may need housing plus uh, social services, some don't, right? unless you really know the individual's needs, you're going to flounder.
2: So like, what would that sound like? Just give us an example. It doesn't have to be literal.
5: Yeah, John Smith, who's on the list, high risk, unsheltered, unhoused. What is it going to take? We were responsible for what's called the continuum of care. We were the community action agency for a multi-county area. And if folks wanted, organizations wanted funding, they had to participate in the process that brought them in the room. Once we were in the room, Our focus then shifted to solving homelessness for everybody on the list. And so fundamentally, over time, by being people-focused, by understanding the unique challenges, that's what led to our success in in, uh, reaching functional zero for veterans' homelessness, then a year later for chronic homelessness.
2: In other words, we have got to rehumanize the bureaucracy. But where do you begin to do that when so many people and institutions are entrenched in that dehumanizing mindset.
3: I have a question. Suppose that you was experiencing something and you gathered other people to discuss your situation and the person that is impacted. For example, when I uh, was stabbed uh, five years ago and I was in the hospital and they had all of the medical staff over there and I explained to them, hey, I have an issue. I have an issue I want you to hear and they dismissed it and they continued to talk about my issue and they were trying to figure out what was going on. I said it again and they didn't hear me. They didn't Mm. listen to what I said until I finally had to violently yank out the apparatus and then then they started to work together to bring me back around. Mm. The point I really want us to really think about is why do we have this conversation without the expert lived experience of people that are experiencing? it? Were they in the room to tell you? Because I dare say a lot of times when unhoused people say the things that are bothering them or the issues that are going on, people are not listening to them.
2: So you're saying it's great to bring everybody into the same room, but is there somebody who's unhoused in the room at the table?
5: Number one, I... I um... I'm sorry for what you experienced. I would be lying if I said that I thought that was unique. You know, our healthcare system generally tends to be extremely dehumanizing. And I could share that, you know, I didn't talk about it earlier, but what gave me great empathy for many of our bureaucratic challenges was, you know, losing my first baby who only lived 40 days, never got out of a neonatal intensive care unit and feeling lost and alone in a NICU uh, with my wife in a hospital away from home. We were traveling to Chicago. This is when I was in my first term as mayor. And I thought, man, if if I'm lost and confused within this system and I'm a mayor and I'm an attorney, how about Mm. everybody else? That was part of my journey and towards understanding and feeling how someone could become lost. And I'd say Mm. we do a horrible job generally of listening. And what it also means is we're not, definitely not empowering people to be in charge of their own journey, right? That's why I'd say that the problem of being program focused is that people become fuel for a program instead of the other mm-hmm. way around, right? The program should be supporting a person. So I'm very sorry for what you went through. And sadly, I think it's too often how we run our organizations, not just when it comes to homelessness, but healthcare and, and other areas of human interaction. You know, when I was meeting with HUD in Region 5, was there anybody there had been unhoused in that conversation? Probably not. But when it came time to actually get someone housed, our entire approach was all about, and again, I I don't take credit for doing this. I wasn't the one in the trenches doing it. But our, our approach shifted fundamentally to literally talking to the homeless individual, asking them what their needs are, and then developing a solution that works for them.
2: There's a lot of evidence, is my understanding, that focusing first on getting safe housing is the most effective way to then offer other services generally. Is that right?
5: Yes. So sure But what was key is listening to the individual and then finding the support that worked best for them.
2: OK, so we're starting to see an interesting theme here. First of all, the importance of the breakdown of healthcare systems and the way that interacts with shelter and also, the importance of humans, right? Of, of getting down to the human level and listening, listening, really listening to the people who are most effective. Alex, what did you want to add?
1: Oh yeah, no, I just want about to, on those last points. If I'm understanding this correctly, by the very nature of this process, you're going to see if you if it's not working or if whatever you're doing is not working for this case. And so if they're looking over person by person, they're seeing like...
2: I see what you mean. It focuses on the outcome, right, as well, opposed to
1: the input. Yeah, they're go- they're going to see the results, and they're going to know, like, hmm. we're not getting the job done here.
2: Right, right. And I want to talk about the numbers and the scale issue, because I think that'll be on a lot of people's minds, is like, okay, how do you do this at scale? So I, want, I will come back to you, Theo, to talk about L.A. more. But I do want to ask Larry also Theo's earlier question, which is... How did you deal with the distrust of law enforcement? There is so much distrust, understandably. So, like, how did you reckon with that in Rockford?
5: Wow, that's a huge, huge question and really important one. And I can tell you the most important and challenging issue I took on that I had direct responsibility for during my time in office was reform of our law enforcement approach. And that was extremely difficult. We had a number of officer-involved shootings lawsuits, you name it, uh, dealing with the police department. And without going into all the detail that it it really merits, I would say that um, I worked very hard to build credibility within the community that I was serious about taking on uh, police reform. Simultaneously, when it came to homelessness, now you can take the opinion that, boy, until I fix these other issues, We can't get this person housed. You will never get there if you take that approach. The work you're doing in those other areas should be in support of an individual's needs. I'm I'm telling you, I I went to too many meetings as mayor, literally too many meetings Hmm. where we're talking around the same general topics instead of talking about human beings that need a number of different elements to be supported. And what ends up happening, if you don't take this human-based approach, you end up blaming the individual. And you've created a system where there's just not enough hours in the day for them to get in line within each agency's organization to do what you have to do to get mm-hmm. job training, to get human services support. If you've been mm-hmm. in the criminal justice system, to get you meet with your probation officer, right?
2: The onus is all on the individual That's to right. go navigate this maze.
5: We create this horrible bureaucracy, then we blame them for not being able to navigate it. It's unfortunate. It doesn't work. But the good news is there's another way.
2: It's interesting to hear Theo and Larry make some of the same arguments coming from very different perspectives. Both of them are telling us to listen to unhoused people, ask them what they need, drill down to the individual by name basis. But then there are real differences. Theo is obviously far more skeptical of law enforcement and thinks there needs to be a fundamental shift in the public's mindset as well.
3: Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that we have in our society, particularly in Los Angeles, has have this dysfunctional belief that police solves everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see an unhoused person standing at the bus stop. We call the police. Mm -hmm. We see the unhoused person just eating a meal and maybe looking shabbily dressed. We call the police in everything. The police officers and fire department agencies in Los Angeles are not part of the solution.
2: Okay, we've talked about some of the things people do wrong, right, when it comes to unhoused people. What would be the right thing to do as, a, as a just a regular Joe Schmo walking down the street who, who's not part of any of these agencies? What, what do you want regular people to do, or can they not really do anything helpful?
3: Well, actually, they can. We need to understand we need to have housed people and unhoused people need to be trained in harm reduction. We have an opioid crisis here in Los Angeles with housed and unhoused people. We need to have harm reduction. We need to be trained in Narcan. We need to be trained in all of the things that were necessary about houselessness. And once we do that, by listening to the lived experience in Weedy and Howes and going to our mutual aid groups, then we could take the situation from a different perspective.
2: There are these mutual aid organizations where people who are housed can get training to try to be more useful to people who are unhoused. Is that something you would recommend?
3: Yes. Every Saturday, you can volunteer and learn exactly the issues that are going on with unhoused people. Unfettered, you can hear it from their mouths. You ain't Mm got to hear it from a social agency. They'll Mm -hmm. tell you what they need to help. And most volunteers help them achieve their goals and housing.
2: For those of you who live in L.A., we'll put a link to the mutual aid organization that Theo's talking about in the show notes. And for everyone else, the idea is this. Find organizations that have current or former unhoused people at the center of them. And then they can tell you what they need. This is something concrete that really seemed to resonate with our listener, Alex.
1: Oh, I just, I think this is, this is really coming together for me. I think kind of deep down, we all just want a quick fix you know, well, city council should just pass something and get the job done and what have you. And the reality is you really need to go much deeper to really Mm. learn and understand what's going on with people. And we can kind of like face that or we can continue to try to brush it under the rug and hope it goes away. And in the meantime, just call the cops to kind of like move unhoused people away from our neighborhoods. By the way, let me say
5: this. I think law enforcement is given an practically impossible task. They're going to get the calls whether they want to receive them or not because people are afraid. They've got anxiety. They don't know what to do, right? So they end up calling police. So they've got a tremendously difficult job. What I hope to do from a governance standpoint is just promote the following, which is get a handle on your governance. Instead of making it about politics, get into some of the nerdy stuff around governance and data and i would say this la obviously much much larger community than the city of rockford but to the extent you've got a much larger community you have to break it down into smaller manageable parts and you, in order to get to human scale right in order to do the things that i've been talking about you ultimately have to make it about individuals if you don't know mm. how many total homeless you're in, you're dealing with you don't know how many resources you need if you don't know the mm. issues of those individuals you're trying to house it's impossible to determine whether or not you have enough resources in the right category to support them.
2: Well, I love this idea of questions we can ask because it's not just for mayors, right? Like it's for people who, journalists who cover this issue um, and also for, you know, guys like Alex who live in places and are voters and maybe can, can ask their elected officials, can you answer these questions? Like, do you actually really know how many people are struggling, who are unhoused right now? Do you actually know their names? Are you listening to them? And to Theo's point, are you bringing them in to the conversation? Do they have a seat at the table? Um, it seems like those are questions that, I mean, maybe it sounds naive, but are those questions we all could ask?
5: Absolutely, you should be asking. Every, everyone should be asking. Is
2: there any this. question you would add to that?
5: So, I mean, we provided an opportunity for all aspects of the work to be seen and to be visible, and for the individuals who are participants to have a voice, uh, like I, th- I think Theo is really speaking to. Otherwise, if you can do those things, then you're you're building an architecture that's much more humane.
2: Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Theo, is there any example that comes to mind of local communities, neighborhoods coming together in LA to support the unhoused?
3: Well, basically, so we created a place and uh, a safe space where unhoused people's needs were talked about and listened to. And then we started to get to work on trying to help them and meeting them where they were. Hmm. Uh, We had educations on harm reduction. We had uh, conversations on what it was like to have a mental illness because most often than not, most of these service providers are talking about them, not talking Mm -hmm. about what it's like to have a mental health crisis and to help them.
2: Alex, the next time you see somebody who's unhoused in L.A., what do you think you might do or think that's different from before?
1: Maybe now, at least, when I do see unhoused people, I'll at least think, what's their name? Mm. What's their name? And, and if we're really serious about making things better, then you probably can't do it until you know their name. Personally, I would like to do more volunteer work where you kind of are face-to-face with the people you know, you're trying to assist. So I am pretty into that. And different people might want different volunteer roles and some people might want to be more behind the scenes. But like, I'm pretty interested to definitely get to know people that are struggling with the issue.
2: Thank you to Alex for bringing us a hard and important question, and to Theo Henderson and Larry Morrissey for sharing their stories and advice. We'll put a link to Theo's podcast, We the Unhoused, in the show notes, along with a link to an essay that the former mayor wrote about his experience getting to functional zero in Rockford. What about you? Is there a problem you're tired of feeling hopeless about? Do you ever look around and feel like there must be a better way? Send us a note at howto.slate.com at or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. We'd love to have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, you know what to do. Give us a rating and a review. Tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Kevin Bendis produced this episode with help from Rosemary Belson. Merritt Jacob is senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created the show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.